This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university in San Francisco. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. Sherry, it's, uh, it's, it's great to be here. I'm excited for our conversation this evening. Same, same. Um, so let's, let's get into it. But first, my signature, Calvin, is always to just take a moment and set an intention. Surprise. Right? Because this feels like a big moment to have this conversation, you know. So just, yeah, think about what we hope to kind of manifest in this conversation, what kind of quality of participation we want to bring. And then we'll start. So I'm so glad to have this conversation with you and our, our uh, listeners may not know, but we had an earlier conversation, but we um, wanted to just start with getting some background. You know, how does uh, a young person growing up in Chicago, right? come to be uh, uh, fascinated with, you know, sort of constructions of American identity and, and post-colonialism and, you know, kind of interweaving all of these things with geography and history, right? Can you just tell me a little bit about the trajectory, you know, of how we, how we got here to, to, this, to this book, to this first nonfiction piece? Wow, that's yeah. thank you for that question. That's a, there's a lot there's a lot in there. Of course, of course. I've been I've been working on this uh, on these issues and thinking about this for a long time. And in the beginning, the very first question I had, and the question I had when I was working on my first novel was what is my country? In all the ways that you can consider that, what is this place? What is it to me? Who am I within it? And it quickly, and once you start teasing that, you start to see how that it's very textured. America is, it's the place that we know. It's a land that we tell ourselves is inclusive. It's the most powerful country in the world. It begins as one of the outposts of the British Empire and still contains elements of right, the colonial ways that India was created, that Nigeria was created, that Jamaica and Barbados. And so you have all of these things going on. And I said about people, many people say like, oh, you've been writing about race for 20 years. Like I've been writing about a multicultural society and what that means. And asserting the fact that this country has always been that. And what's in play now, as in the beginning, are the terms of that shared space. Right, right, right. The terms of that shared space. So, <clears throat> oh, you know, I'm going to have to rein myself in because even in you saying that, it made me wonder at what point, um, at what point did you realize that you, that, you know, your experience was not, you know what I mean? Was not a part of what the country, you know, your country had in mind. Do you know what I mean? Like growing up as a as a young black person, there's that moment where you're like, oh. So there are two uh, there are two moments. Uh huh. One of them is when you say that, right? As you say that question, it is it reinforces that fact, and I think part of my Part of my program, if you will, part of my project is rejecting that fact because who is anyone to tell me, like, who is any <laughs> other adult, who is any See? other, right, to tell me who I am in the place I'm from and to dictate to me what I may be. And so my life is lived positively 
according to those things that move me, that motivate me, that I dream about, that I aspire to, that I fear, that right? all those human things and passions that move us all. It becomes complicated when it's contested. And so the second part of your question is, when did I first understand it would be contested? Yeah. Fantastic question. And, okay, two answers to that. Everything has multiple answers. I know, I, I know. One of the reasons I've been waiting to have this conversation is because when I talk to you, I was like, oh, Sherry, you know, there's a level here and a level here and a level here and a level here. And we're going to get into all of them tonight. And one of them is just realizing, like, oh, I think differently. And so by the fact that right, I had a realization when I was maybe 10 years old that my mind worked in, in ways that other minds didn't necessarily work. Right. In a very strong sense that, oh, I'm not going to have a normative life. And that wasn't a race moment. That was simply about who I am. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And when does the race moment happen? I couldn't tell you the first time, but it happens every day. It happens in white space. It happens, and one of the things I try to get across in this book, and this is important about who all of us are, as well as the conversation that we all purport to be having, and there's a self in private, and this goes back to, this goes back to Immanuel Kant, uh, who we can get off into Kant later, but, and there's a public self. Right. Oof. And when we're hanging out in a space like this, you know, sort of oblivious to who may be listening and just, <laughs> right, Calvin and Sherry right. talking. Just or Calvin, or Calvin alone. And this mm -hmm. is something, you said something to me in an earlier conversation. You know, we are all alone and people have a hard time accepting that fact. Right. And so and that happens. That's a very deep level. But there's a level, a very common level. It's like, OK, I have a private space and a private self, what I do in my home, what I like, what I'm like with my family and my friends. And that's one thing. And then who I am in public. Right. As like as citizen and and then as black body. Yeah. You know what? So let's get let this is a perfect segue because I'm actually seeing that that's a whole other conversation around integration, right? The public and, oh, I said it. Yes. <laughs> you feel me? Okay, so let's just move that's into, right. right? Let's move into, right. into some of the book. Because again, everyone, I, I really recommend uh, that you buy the book. Um, I'm someone that does this work, you know, sort of DEI, and we'll touch on that later. Because I know we have some some ideas about it, but it's um, it's really uh, brought me into some important questions around how I want to be showing up in this moment. So thank you for that. But so just to give folks a quick a little bit of an overview, so you you trace kind of the this this conversation in the United States, right? And you kind of uh, have these moments. It was like the Continental Congress and then the civil war, civil rights, and then now, right? It's sort of, there's these four points. Um, and and what your, what I understood, like the, the main thesis, right, is that the revolution isn't complete, right? From, from back in the day. That, that's right. And it is, and the reason it wasn't complete is the most contentious, the most contentious point at founding was that of slavery. And we write in the in the Constitution, the first Constitution, and everyone bends, people bend over backwards to not say slavery in the Constitution, as people bend over backwards to not say certain words now. However, they and, and there were people who who meant this deeply, uh, including delegates who said, I will not sign a document that includes the word slaves including Thomas Paine of the Federalist Papers, who says, let the South go their own way, we don't need them. But you have these powerful economic forces. I mean, one of the things that I've worked a lot with American history, and one of the things that becomes, 
as a novelist, and one of the things that becomes clear is not only that history repeats itself, but human nature doesn't change. And so you have these points, and, and I mean, and that's, that's profound. I want to sit with that for a moment because one of the things, one of the most remarkable things, I don't remember who said it, that I've ever heard said about slavery is it's not like these abstract, like, right, these people who are lesser. It's, it's like Calvin and Sherry. And when you go back and you read the works of Equiano, of those who had voices, you understand what remarkable, amazing people they were. And therefore, how weird this is to go to the main question. The first point at the Continental Congress, people say, all right, we're going to allow slavery now just so we can get support, right? Like get everyone on board in this committee meeting that we're having here. And right, you've got slave uh, slave owning interests and shipping interests from from Boston and New York and we need to cobble everyone together so we can wage this audacious war against the English everyone knew or a great many people knew including Jefferson who I uh, who I'm fascinated with and I talk about in the book only because he is the most conflicted man I've ever come across in in all of literature and all of history and it leads directly to the Civil War, which is the second possibility and the second moment. And by historians of the period, it's known as the Second American Revolution. As the first revolution knew, right, slavery is the untenable compromise. And all of those years go, it, the Civil War didn't simply erupt. You're fighting over the issue of slavery every step of the way, every presidential election, every new state that you allow into the Union. This is the issue. It's the thing. And so finally, war happens. And the war had been presaged. It had been in the air for 50 years by the time it happened. And one of the remarkable things, one of the remarkable conversations that happens are those between Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln, two remarkable men and, you know, Lincoln begins as a typical centrist liberal trying to hold the line, trying to accommodate the South and slowly moves toward war. And then as he's, he's moving toward emancipation and Douglas says something profound that Lincoln would come to accept. And it's, you know, ending slavery is only the beginning. Right. After the slave trade ends, and I'm just walking, I want to walk through the whole no, thing. No, I and appreciate we'll come back. it. Yeah. After it ends, as James Baldwin said in one of his final, one of his final uh, public appearances, they, they made no provisions for those people whatsoever, whatsoever, whatsoever. And you see any other people who have, been, have suffered war and abuse and trauma, if you right, you go and you understand that nation building has to happen, that did not happen in this country. And as soon as the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments are passed, they're immediately attacked. The South reconstitutes itself in this thing we call Jim Crow. Jim Crow. Mm -hmm. And you get to the third phase, which is, right, so you, you have emancipation, uh, and then you have... And then, and, and then you have desegregation, which is another, it's another passive, reactive term. And it was powerful and it was mighty, but you see, you're coming from so far back that what you're asking for, and, and desegregation is a polite term to say abject oppression in every possible way. And it's the 1960s when that becomes, right, when legal segregation is abolished. That's in living memory. Mm-hmm. That's mm -hmm. a living memory. And then you come to the third phase that I call integration. Again, it was the original, it was the it was the original prescription. We've only been in a moment since the 60s, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and you have 15 years of active measures before 
the right wing gains enough power to push back against it. And everything they do is in opposition to the Civil Rights Act. And we forget that and we bend over backwards to come up with other explanations for what's going on here. Right, right. So, you know, and as you're talking, I'm thinking about um, just the difference between desegregation and integration, right? So desegregation, right, is a is a first step, but integration is that, um, you know, that we were talking about that it's it's like the path to true reconciliation, like that sort of the the sovereignty aspect of it, like what 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 the what that whole project of a de- democratic society would be, you know. And, and we have, and one of the things I've uh, that has struck me very powerfully as I've been talking about this book and presenting over the last three weeks is people are dumbstruck. And when I say, well, we have to integrate those who are excluded from opportunity in this country into the full promise of America. And everyone says, how do we do that? Well, we did it with the Germans. We did it with the Italians. We did it with the Jews. We did it with every European group that's ever come over. And we did it with things like the New Deal, with things like the GI Bill, right? And so you're you're creating wealth through housing. You're making pathways to education. You're building land-grant universities. Black people are excluded from all of those things. What that is, and Ira Katznelson is is the great scholar of this, uh, but black people are excluded, right? If you look at the new the New Deal, Southern Democrats tell Roosevelt, "You're not going to get this if we can't exclude blacks from it." People, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so and now we come to we come to this point where there have been all these all these advances in American material well being, in American technology, and at each step, Americans exclu- find a way to exclude black people, and so the problem remains, right? Right. Because let's let's talk about chapters five, six and seven, because that's where you get. That's where I literally wrote in the book when I got there. I was like, oh, come through because <laughs> you kind of <laughs> talk to me. You, you kind of get into exactly this. Right. That that it's like we're 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 playing dumb somehow with, we don't know how to do this. This is so hard. It's like, but we've done it. So what's, what's really the difference? And also the fact then that, that the way, the, the, the way that the discourse around black people has been set up is that it's all about the inner work, right? It's all about, take a deep breath. (laughs) It's all about, you know, we've got to like, I don't know. Um, I don't even have a word for it, but it seems it's very it's very much invested in the interior life. And I think, you know, one of the things that we talked about, right, is that we can't it's like that's a Sisyphean, you know, uh, ordeal. Like we can't police people's psyches. You know, we can't we can't make people believe X, Y or Z or not feel a way. Does that make sense? That it, it, it makes it makes astounding sense, and I'll point out two things. Right, Earl, the first iterations of the civil rights movement, beginning with the abolitionists, and right, and continuing in, through Dr. King, it's a campaign of moral suasion. And for a country that professes Christianity, though Christianity itself is captured by slavery. In America, it simply is the stances that it took. Uh, morally, you're a minister; you know this better than I. And the the gains that we and so you come to like the the, the late stages of the Civil Rights Act of the Civil Rights Movement, the Black Panthers, Malcolm X, and it's then that you enter this language of stone cold reason because moral suasion had reached its limits and now we're like and now we're engaged in a kind of moral sway the self-help movements as i call them and right it's like if only i try hard enough then i can escape this you can't escape it because it produces you 
The only can't right and like and these movement they're tautological and it's larger than you, and so and it's larger than me and it produces me, and so when you say if you do this, it's a magic wand. And I remember voting when I went to vote for uh, for Obama in, uh, in two thousand eight. All of these, all of my neighbors. I was living in a in a in a neighborhood of my neighbors majority European descendant. Uh, and there was a sense of elation for them, and they wanted to do, and they felt, you could also tell, but there was also the sense of absolution, that this one act solves everything, and we've moved from there to this, right, this campaign, I call them like the South Beach diets for racism, and you, and you see that's not going to solve anything. At best, at best, you're an unreliable narrator of your own, right, which I think these things adequately point out. In fairness to them, everyone, everyone's at a different place and liberals for too long, and this, and I include progressives, progressives in this, have had a willful blind spot when it comes to race. And we've gone through a theater of racial a racial awakening That's that it. begins in the great awakening itself right and these are the years that lead up to the revolution and it's the first time Americans are really right because slavery happened it happened jurisdiction by jurisdiction it happened peace but 150 years in at the time of the continental congress you have a race problem and people realize in that founding generation, we have a race problem. Something has went wrong here. And de, Toc de Tocqueville says, if this country fails, it will be because of race. And so you have all these early witnesses to this, profound witnesses to this. They saw it and, uh -huh. and then we forget. And then- Do and we though? People claim, because you can, I will say this, if you write a history book that privileges a Confederate point of view or writes out African-American points of view, if you live in a suburb that is all, all white, if you or a neighborhood in the city and you're, you move from one, you move from a white neighborhood to a white university, to a white employer in a white friend group, and you can claim, you can actually claim, I did not know, even though there are 400 years of history that you should know about, as, especially as an educated person, but you're allowed, these are the things that you're allowed to not know. And this is the pact between whites across the political spectrum. And now we're in a moment where people are claiming again, some of them quite, quite ingenuously, I did not know this. What can I do? Well, you see, you are 400 years behind where you should have been, and we cannot wait for you any longer. And I think that is the urgency, I think, is something that really I tapped into. And when I was reading this is really uh, how urgent the moment is, because I do write the, the narratives that we are sitting in are about like there's a lot of learning, you know, We've got to we've got to learn and we've got to unlearn and you know people have to have a have a whole lexicon in order to 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 make a change, you know. Um, that's and you teach and that's letting the back of the class run the <laughs> right run the curriculum and right if like if I'm moving Listen. as quickly as my slowest student no one's getting anywhere in this class and you're doing everyone ultimately a disservice that person need or right, this is remedial stuff but it's if the majority is in a remedial place then for those who aren't have a duty to lead and some of that leading means puncturing these narratives, these false narratives that we're allowing ourselves to believe. Right, Trump is election, elected and people say, I didn't know that it ran so deep. Really? Yeah, no, that's true. I was about to say, really? And I remember that's totally what happened. Yeah, yeah. Right, and, or like, oh, why don't, I mean, you can point to any number of things. However, 
we are also the first generation born after the civil rights movement. And that means that there are possibilities in this moment for your life, for my life, for everyone born after 1964 and those who are still young then, who are not entirely produced by segregation, to demand something more. Okay, so... And that's the finishing of the revolution. <laughs> the end. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> so there was one thing, there, well, not there was a lot of things, but there was one thing that I'm still sitting with. And again, this is that, that part where it's making me, it's encouraging me to rethink how I show up. And it's that you really bring home the point that we can't get away. We're not going to talk our way out of race and racism because race itself is is a I can't even what am I trying to like it's it's the ultimate you know like what I say it's the ultimate master's tools can't dismantle the master's house like right it's, we we need it there's a way that we're we've locked ourselves into it and it's it's the container we're in Right. Yeah. And everyone. Yeah. And, and so you and, and that's why we talk about these things that we both have short patience for. I didn't know. I didn't know. And or I'm here. or I mean better. Or I like blah, blah. Like that's just that's rhetoric. And so let's move beyond the rhetoric and let's ask, as we would in any other context. How do you solve the problem? And we will, we talk about all the problems of race and their perennial and American awakening is cyclical. The only thing that has improved the situation, those eight years after the Civil War called uh, Reconstruction, and those 15 years after the passage of the Civil Rights Act, before the right wing, which is, again, these are the people who were against the Civil Rights Act. So everything, right, the Republican Party, just everything they do say, okay, these are the people who are against the Civil Rights Act. In many cases, it's the same people. They are, all of this is in living memory. This is their covert campaign. Nixon gave, gave everyone a language to not say N-word, N-word, N-word. They, so instead you say tough on crime. crime. You, say law, you say law and order, right? Which is the echoey, that's the echo today. Right. We've got federal troops going, being sent in and campaign, you know, these campaign commercials where it's a, you know, an elderly white woman and her home is being broken into by a shadowy dark figure. I mean, you know, you can't. It's... All of this, this is there's a straight line. There's a straight line from that to the antebellum South and just a, a direct line. Mm-hmm. And we and it's still around us. The 15 years after the passage of the Civil Civil Rights Act, and and the important thing to remember about the Civil Rights Act, because we talk about crime, we talk about policing, we have to remember that every site in society is policed. Race is made in three basic basic sites, the hard sites of government and economics, the cultural sites of media, Education, this is where you're learning your narratives of selfhood and nation. Representation, all of that. Uh Uh-huh. And then personally and interpersonally. And right, and as well as right, and so you and you have housing and you have public space. So the neighborhoods, people, everyone lives in a segregated neighborhood in America. People go to segregated schools. And New York public school American public schools as a whole are as segregated now as they were in the 50s. And because there have been concerted campaigns to keep them so. And they don't call themselves Jim Crow anymore. They call themselves, by any number of other names, the agenda's the same. In a brief period from 64 to about 1980, when everyone voted for Reagan, mm-hmm. and <laughs> right, which gives the right wing this incredible power to start reshaping things, because again, it's a pack, it's an economic pack between the between white conservatives and white liberals. And so, and it's right because Carter did too much. Everyone's you know, Carter's still a pariah, Reagan's still a hero. They're fighting about civil rights. They're fighting about civil rights. Never lose sight of that. 
And until like until that moment, you have movement, and you have the the greatest increase of African Americans in the middle class this country has ever seen. It became too much, and so that's what they were against. Just as Barack Obama's victory, symbolic as it was in many ways, was too much. And people thought they've come too far. Oh yeah, they've Back. done enough. <laughs> yeah, the the pendulum swung all the way. It, All the way to the other side. I don't think the pendulum swung. I think there was a a desperation and a desperation that says we can take off the gloves now. We are in a life and death fight for the Confederacy, this for is so, the white supremacist state. This is, and this is what I think, this is where you and I went with like this idea of like, that psychic space of 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 how, we were talking about the country sort of being sick you know That's, yep mm-hmm. and 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 more so you know dare i say spiritually sick you know soul sick um and just thinking about that because that's exactly it. The fact that it that that's the that's sort of the you know in psychological terms that's the level of regression you know, lo- it goes to life and death. It goes to, you know, I'm goes, gonna I'm gonna be annihilated. It goes right? to it goes to money, it goes to well, it is because whiteness is as I call in the book, it's not rational. It is an irrational belief system, it is a religion, it gives people a sense of who they are. And and some of it is you're like you're not you're not inculcating people into Americanness. You're inculcating them into whiteness. You're telling them no matter what. And like and whiteness is constructed against blackness. So you create you create public sport. You have baseball stadiums. Well, guess who can't play? You go to a theater to right. You go to watch a show. David Nassau writes about this brilliantly, and. You go to theater and what are you watching? You're watching minstrel shows. And right, like minstrel shows. Here's the like here's one of the remarkable things about America. It's the extent to which our technology moves our moves these tropes forward. And so we're ever telling ourselves we're technologically advanced, we are right, we're so we're so far seeing you like you invent a locomotive that connects one coast to another. And what do you do? You segregate the train cars, you, in, right. you invent moving <laughs> pictures. And what do you put on like things like darkies doing a dance? You start like you create a, which is a real title of one of Edison's talkies. Uh, you, it, it was a silent, you create advertising that lets you sell goods and open markets. And what are you selling everything? What Entremama and Uncle Ben? And you're still doing this. Still. You're still doing this. And, yeah. it, like, and, it, and it morphs and it, but the terms are white control of blackness. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. another question that I get very often is, and I want to come back to it, right? Like, <laughs> I, it's what? I, it's what? No, 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 no. Because like because we're talking about this soul sickness. We're talking yeah, about soul yeah, sickness yeah. that lets you allow and embrace the most rapacious form of capitalism on earth. And why are you doing and lets you destroy social sa- like safety networks because well, who's that for? But welfare right. queens and Cadillacs. And right. We tell ourselves these things, and, and, and what was the, the final point I was going to make? I forgot. <laughs> I, got talking, myself. I, I don't know. It's I get okay. so excited okay. when I'm talking. I, I get so excited when I'm talking because I love it. But I'm going to slow down. <laughs> it's okay. I mean, you know, it. I mean, because part of me, part of me wanted to say, "That's it. That's what we need to do right there." Right. <laughs> well, want to be like, because you know, I'm just th- when you're talking, I'm thinking about like all of this these performative gestures that came after George Floyd and folks taking a knee and wearing kente cloths. And it's like, nobody asked for that. There's clear things, right, that that Black people have been asking for since 40 Acres and a Mule. Go back to the Civil Rights Act. 
address the sites of voting, of education, of housing, and of employment. Right? Those are your key sites. So, yes, there needs to be police reform, but that is not enough. That is too that is too low an ask. And I do not want to I do not want to sit here and right, the calendar turns to November, turns to January, and there's been a democratic victory or even a democratic sweep of the le- of legislative bodies and people celebrate. Now everything's going to be fine. It's not going to be fine not- unless we keep making demands. Now you need you need partners in Washington. You need partners in your state house. You need partners in government, but they do what the people want them to do and what they demand of them. And if we are serious about this, we are going to make concerted demands upon them. Mm-hmm. 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 That's making me recall in our earlier conversation. You know when I. And I asked about, so how does all of this work for our indigenous kin, right? Because this is, you know, on top of it, we all own stolen land. So where, how does that work? And what you said was that, well, right, it's like this, uh, the right to refuse, you know, the, you have, the right you, to, <laughs> to say, I don't want no part of this, you know? And so you have me fired up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm rarely, people who know me, like Calvin runs cool. And oh, Tonight I'm tonight I'm feeling it. Okay. Uh, so it's two things. And when I talk about integration, it applies to everyone. Right? Black people because of the ways race is constructed, but I mean simply and solely everyone deserves full access to participate in this democracy and further to participation to help shape it. It's true of black people, it's true of Latinos, it's true of gays and lesbians, it's true. Everyone. 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 Everyone? Native Americans, even people we disagree with, right? And so if everyone participates and you you have a disagreement, that's an honest disagreement. It's not as opposed to a gerrymandered white nationalist state. When it comes to and the and here's the I, I had to think about this, and here's the here's the tricky thing about Native Americans and about when when I say integration, some people will hear assimilation, which I don't mean. I mean that one has the right to be accepted as one is, and in the case of Indigenous people, the ways in which they were colonized were not simply the brutal, like the brutal ways that we know of, trails of teal, tears, stolen land, dispossession, but also a concerted attempt to assimilate them to yeah, European the boarding schools and so, uh huh, uh huh. Which they and you see, and again, all of these patterns, like you see the same thing in Australia, right? So everything that you see in America, you see in another part of the former British Empire or the Spanish Empire, and the right to you're like. Oh, well, there's, we are in stolen land. This country begins, right, we talk about the original sin of slavery. There's another, there's another sin that gets lost sight of because those massacres were so, this is the wrong word, but effective in their aims. And so you have a right to, I, I do think Native Americans have rights of sovereignty and which include the right to refuse this culture altogether or to participate as they so elect. I think everyone else, you know, you have to participate and hash out what that means. Yeah, yeah. So this is like probably not the best segue, but there's a couple questions that I had because... um, in chapter six, there's the death of the civil rights movement. You know, it really, I really was struck by, you know, the conversation about leadership, you know, leaders of movements, right? And and how our government, how the American government, how the United States government responds to uh, those folks that truly might be able to ignite something, Right the Fred Hamptons of the world, the 
the Malcolm X's, the Martin Luther King Juniors, you know. Um, Edgar Evers, yeah. Angela Davis, and right. right. And just wanted to hear from you, like, what are you? Because at this moment we're in now, like, what do you think about um, leadership and and movements? Because there's kind of a decentralized thing that's happening now, which is very exciting and interesting, right? That there is no identifiable leader. So I have a. I've, Complex thoughts about that. And of course you do. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. And one of them is, you know, I wrote this book because one of the things that happens when you when you annihilate the leaders of one generation, there's a certain amount of knowledge that is not passed on. And so, and there's a, right, in some ways a generation gap between the people who who taught us and and the younger people and one of the things that you do is hold space and say well this is effective and this is buried and this is unknown and these tactics work and right and so i wanted to go through the history of the civil rights movement connected to right to all of these different eras in american history but also these different uh usually segregated subject matter uh, areas and offer that to people as so that they have a, a toolkit, a blueprint in which they can apply this learning to, the, to whatever sites that they wish. That's A. And so to the extent that it's desegregated, one has to live with it. And however, at some point, there has to be a real coming together. And I've heard it said that we're in the largest moment of mass mobilization in history, which I'd always thought of as the civil rights movement. And so if we are in fact mobilizing now, we have to make sure that we're asking for the right things, that our eyes are on the prize, and we have to understand that we don't have to make this up. Right? There's a blueprint that produces us. And so when we talk about, and this is the, this is a point from earlier that I lost, when we, when we say things are bad, things are bad, things are bad, and Obama says something like, well, if you go and talk to a black man from the Jim Crow South and ask him if things are, like, yes, they're better because of integration. That is the only thing that has worked. It became politically uh, athema, and no one talks about it, right? And so you say it, or you say affirmative action, and people are like, you can't say that, you can't say that, you can't say, why? Because it worked and it was made politically toxic. That was their campaign. Right, right. Yeah, because affirmative action works. It works, it works. <laughs> it and works. We, and it's why like, we live in a state now, like 90% of people claim to support the principles of equality, of fairness, of diversity, of inclusion, twenty to thirty percent, depending on the on the on the metrics, support programs that lead to change that have been proven to be effective. And so, right, we can we can rebrand them. We can call it equity. We can call it inclusion, or we can call it integration. I'm not invested in rhetoric here. I'm invested in a blueprint, a vision, and a path forward. Of, thank you for saying vision, because I think that, that that's kind of where we landed, you know, in that way of um, thinking about uh, past, what the past, what the present owes the past, and this vision for the future. And one of the questions, you know, that we we were sitting with and that I'm going to keep wrestling with and I'm going to get you back in it too, is is that, you know, what is the role of the creative right now, right? You're, you know, a writer, you know, the the role of musicians, you know, there's this, uh, there's this little mini video going around of John, John Lewis talking about, um, you know, how important music is to a movement. And in fact, then you talk about Notorious B.I.G. and how that, hearing him really shaped you and kind of started transforming your consciousness. And That's really amazing. So what now, Calvin? And so there were, so there were, there were a number of people, and again, and I, and I actually begin that chapter with Public Enemy, 
And the first time I hear, I heard Public Enemy. And what Public Enemy was doing, all they were doing was bringing forward the teachings of Malcolm X into the 90s, right? And as, as people who witnessed that and, say, and giving that moment a language for change, for resistance, a sense of history, connectedness to, to the elders, to these visionary people. And what artists are supposed to have, leaders are supposed to have 50, 100 year visions. That is, that's, I mean, that's, that's what you do. And I'm not talking about commercial art or, right, things that like might go viral. That's a, that's a different thing. But the, the real art, the art that has lasted, the visions that have lasted were intended to last. And if you go back to the philosophers of democracy. If you go back to Kant, who was a racist, by the way, but, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but you know, Kant has this notion, he's like, oh, this is an idea so powerful, it's destined to encapsulate all of humanity. And up until even, and there was a, there was a time even recently, when you have these neocon wars to spread democracy, now you're not doing it at home, but you're still somehow investing this idea, this Kantian or Rousseauian, wherever you dial in, that democracy is the way people are supposed to live. I don't know if that's the fate of the entire world. There, other people have other ideas, but it should be the fate of America. And that shouldn't be a hard sell, and that shouldn't be seen as idealistic, and we have seen enough evidence of it. You have a Sherry Taylor sitting there. You have, you have all these amazing leaders, all these people who are, in fact, produced by integration. They should not be the exception. It should be the norm. It should be the norm. Right. Right. So how do we, you know, how do we... What do you say to how to connect people to that vision, right? Because it's not just the creatives. That's the one thing that you and I were talking about. We agreed on, right? Like everybody has that capacity, right? To that 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 um, that imagination, right? That that ability to to hold a vision. It's a fundamental fact of the human, isn't it? I think so. We are all, so. we're all like, we are all creative. We all have a sense of creativity. Some people have cultivated theirs to greater extent. Some people, right, just like we can all count, we can all dream, and we can all connect to each other's dreams and spirits. And, right, like, one of the things I, I the book is, it's, it's intellectual, but it's also very felt. Oh, no, you, you hear the spiritual tone. You, I caught it. Because it's a belief system. Yeah. Right? Race is a belief system. And as long as we're talking about race and how do we get out of race, then we're still talking about racial belief systems. We're still privileging it. We're still reinforcing it. Every time I hear white privilege, the first thing I hear is white, me as whiteness, and what do I have to do as a white person without giving up my whiteness to not feel, to not feel guilty, to not... Re- it's like you can't. Right. You actually have to give that up because what does it mean? That is an in, it is it is an invention. It is an absolute fundamental so myth. Invention. Right. And what do I have to do as an American? What is the dream for what this country is? And this is what I've been working on for my entire career. It is meant to be an inclusive, multicultural space. And if the world isn't free, this should be a place where everyone in it is where everyone has opportunity. There's no, I mean, I, I could push it further and say, there's no reason there should be poor people in America. We have, but I'm not, I'm, I'm leaving out the, the pure economic critiques right now to, to ride my own hobby horse, which is, <laughs> which is race because so much reduces to that. So many crimes are committed in the name of that, and I can wave a magic wand and say, the only people who need help right now during COVID are people of color, and everyone will say, okay, we don't need help, right? Like, you just, you create these narratives of race that, and everyone stays in their lane. You have to reject that. And other, I mean, people have known this. People know these things, right? It's, 
So there are two things you go like you go back to the past in order to imagine the future. You're learning the history. You think of you think of a great painter. You think of a great musician, and they you look at everything. You listen to everything, and you say, "What is it that we need right now?" We have to turn the frame conceptually just a little bit. Don't talk about race. Ask yourself, how integrated is this space? We were joking earlier during the sound check <laughs> about. <laughs> I have to. I have to come back to this. Go on, this is, come on. This is real and material, and I made a joke about uh, about San Francisco, which wasn't a joke, and it was. It's the observation that whenever I'm there, I'm struck by the profound number of homeless people of color on the sleeping on the streets in this phenomenally wealthy place, a phenomenally sophisticated place filled of some of the best educated people in this country. And so if you're produced by that, if, if that is your data, and that would have been the like a reality for someone in the 19th century, right? These people who are materially impoverished, we therefore began to look at as lesser than, we we hold an existence we we view charitably if at all and not as human beings and not a nation and huh. a nation where sovereignty belongs to the people everyone is sovereign that homeless person is sovereign now you can reject that and say well i've done this and this and this like i'm sherry taylor i went to stanford i've like i've like i've done all of these amazing things and i'm better than that Which many people do. Yep, they do. But again, it's when you, when you, that's the first separation of self from another. And once, and race is the ultimate one. Once you create these, this is where I get a little esoteric and I don't want to I love it. I love it. Go. You better go. You better go. You better go. Once I separate myself from you, right? I'm also separating myself from me. And I'm allowing all of these things done in my name. That's when I can say, oh, I didn't know. Right. I didn't know because I'm a person divided. Ooh. How can you walk down the street and see all that suffering and right. say, I did not know. It is everywhere. It is everywhere. It is everywhere. Right. So what's really going on, right? That's right. That, it, that, that, that it's possible because that's all that I mean the the paradox is that and for that person that says I didn't know there's a certain kernel of truth in that right because you because you're produced by a place yep. that's meant to keep those people out because you're educating places meant to keep those people scare quotes out because you work in a place that actively keeps those people out literally and figuratively and you don't see them. You don't see them. And then you have a moment of awakening when the people rise up, when the people recognize their sense, their collective power and energy, and they say, we want something different. And you say, I didn't know. Well, that's slow walking. Right, because now I'm supposed to stop and explain to you all of the things that you didn't know. There's a library of books. You know, there's a library of books, and I spend the I spend the first fifty pages of this book saying, "Okay, here are all the things you didn't oh know. Now let's move on. Now we've got another two hundred pages of stuff. Now you know that. That's like remember right. last semester. Right. Oh, you didn't learn this, and like so this and this and this and this. And we're not going to play this theater of awakening again. We're going to presume, uh, assume that everyone is knowledgeable, intelligent, can learn. Here's the information. Now, if you are serious, what do you do with it? Right. Well, and I think that that's that, you know, back to this sort of esoteric piece. It's again, it's like the the learning and the awareness is meant to trigger a transformation of consciousness. And that is meant to trigger action. Correct. Exactly. But where we get stuck. We get stuck on. We get stuck in our own consciousness. We get stuck in our own psychology. Ooh. Or our collective psychologies. No, that's you said it. That's it. 
Right. Because I, and, and I think this is where we get to, right? Because if we, like you said, if we strip it all away, right? Because as you, as we, that's the, the so provocative for me is that what does it mean to give up race? What would that mean? And, and mean, and to that. give up, to give up, so we'll let me be clear, to give up the function of race, right? Because clearly, like maybe there's distinctions in skin tone and this, that, but to give up the way that it functions. Everyone us. wants to. Everyone wants to. That's what they mean when they say, when the Supreme Court pretends that we live in a colorblind society, when a liberal says, I don't see color, everyone wants it to go away. Everyone wants us to, right, when you go and you vote for Barack Obama and Michelle Obama and you look down your nose at, at regular black folks, everyone wants this to go away, right, when you go out and you buy a bunch of books and maybe you read them, maybe you don't. And it's also important to remember when you're doing these things that a lot of the frames that these conversations are being shaped by at the moment are corporate frames. Mm-hmm. And so, right, when you talk about, and if, uh, when you talk about a book, you're talking about a product. <laughs> and no, I want to I wanna draw myself in because I can't. And so I, even though I think this book is doing something differently, of course, even though I think this book is radical, of course, even though I think this book offers a new paradigm, it's still being presented. There's a corporate machine that, you know, goes and like Calvin Baker's written a book about race. I will go, like, I will see it in windows about race in places where there isn't a lot of diversity. And it's like, and it's performing and people will take it or not take it as, right, that's only a book. It's only a book. And there are things, and this is why I say we've come to a moment that are greater than rhetoric if we want it. If we want it. This is about action. And to your point earlier, the rhetoric inspires consciousness, inspires action. The only thing I want to say is this is the correct action in this. And this is what we've lost sight of because we're so, we're so busy looking at our feet. We have to look out here, look at these things that started working, do more of them, theorize them, right? Take them into your, your place of business, into your place of worship, into your family, into your, into your school, and work on that. And look around yourself and say, how integrated is this space? How integrated is this space? Not how diverse, right? Not, Not how, how multicultural. Not how multicultural, because mm -hmm. we, can, we can achieve, like, that's a show. That's a dressing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It could be multicultural enough. You know, <laughs> there are hundred million. Uh, there, I, I don't want to. There's something. I, I know that there are thirty million black people living in poverty in this country, and I think there are hundred million Americans in total. And someone can, someone out there can fact check that, but I'm pretty sure those are the numbers. How is that possible? Well, it's because of those thirty. Because you say, well, poverty is a black thing. Poverty is a brown thing. And then you have, and, and then if you're a white person in poverty, you're like, well, at least I'm not black or brown. That's the narrative. And we all know that that's what people say in private. Right. Right. And now we're <laughs> saying it all in public and it's good to get it out there. But we also have to say the things that we say in closed doors, the things, I mean, I love this conversation because it's like talking to a friend and <laughs> I'm not dumbing anything down. I'm not, I right? It's know, like, you're just yeah. like, we're just being real. And yep. we know that this works. Right. I mean, oh, it's so, okay. You know what? I mean, I, there's a part of me that read this and like wanted to like just drop it because I was like, it's so, you know, because it's, you know, full circle back and then we'll move into our, um, into our Q&A. Is that 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 what you just said right at the at the very beginning was that history has also sort of shown you that there's something about human nature that also I want to say is resistant to change. I don't want to say that it doesn't change, but you know, right. But this is the story of our lives, right? I mean, that's the that's a sneaky that's the <laughs> sneaky autobiographical element of the book and i extend yeah. myself in ways in this book that i, I i've never i never have before mm -hmm. because this is what creates me 
this is great. Right. What this allows what me to, you. to know all of this? It's because I had all this opportunity. Right. Right. Oh, Calvin, thank you so much. I mean, what a conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrer at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team includes Kyle DiMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Jason MacArthur, and Patty Fort. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts. Visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs.